1: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Will Mavity's interviews with the composer for The Tragedy of Macbeth, Carter Burwell, and the production designer, Stefan de By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes.
2: My husband. King that shall be.
3: If we should fail,
0: we fail. All right, so Carter, you know I'm always a huge fan of your Cohen work. I still can't believe that uh, if you got in for this, it would be your first Cohen film to be Oscar nominated for score. You were robbed for Fargo, you know that speaks for itself. Um, so this one's interesting. It's more stripped down than some of the stuff you've usually done. Tell me a little bit about how you decided to go comparatively minimalist, really just using a few simple strings and percussions in this one.
2: Sure, um, you know a lot of that has to do with um, the nature of the the dialogue, which is William Shakespeare. You know, we um, we figured first of all that you know there's just a great deal of dialogue; it's very um, dense. But also that you know an American audience or any audience in twenty first century takes it takes them a little while to actually grasp that manner of speech. So I was just trying really hard not to conflict with that. So when people are speaking, usually the yeah, the the music is all down in the string, down in the low strings, cellos and basses. And um, Joel and I came to this kind of concept that the dialogue is the melody. And that the score would be accompanying it in a sense, mm. and then it's only in those areas between um, dialogue that, that the music can really like come out, and um, you know it has certain details like that um, solo violin that plays sort of a fiddle part, or um, you know in the latter part of the film, like when Burnham Wood is is marching to Dunsinane, then it can we can get the brass and the you know timpani and everything going, but. Um, you're right, that basically when the dialogue is happening, I'm trying to make sure that I don't uh, distract and, um, because it's a little hard for a lot of contemporary audiences to get at all. Yeah,
0: that's an interesting thing you're saying about the, uh, the dialogue being the melody. I was actually curious, you know, I was listening to the soundtrack releases, I noticed the sound effects and uh, some of the spoken dialogue is in there. So I guess, tell me a little bit, you mentioned the dialogue, but also using some of Skip Leibze's footsteps and then the bells and things like that to enhance your music.
2: Yeah, well, that does come from that same idea. That's right. I felt like I had written the music, particularly certain of these monologues, like the um, Denzel's, is, is this a dagger I see before me? And some of these famous monologues, the music is very much written to the dialogue, the, the rhythm of the music. For instance, in that one, the rhythm of the music is working with the rhythm of the footsteps and the rhythm of the dialogue. So that if you just pull the music out and don't hear those other things, it doesn't, to me at least, it doesn't make as much sense. And then when they're all together, you know, you really understand uh, it as a single audio art form, you know, if, uh, and, yeah. I, and I have a really good word for it, but you know, all of those different parts of the audio um, are designed to work with each other. So just pulling out the music and listening to that didn't make a lot of sense to me. I really wanted to try to have them them all present.
0: So you mentioned, obviously, there's some fiddle, there's some bass going on, but I liked how at various points you had some interesting percussion that use like majestic church bells. So mm-hmm. tell me about some of those kind of creative percussion devices you used.
2: Yeah, there. Um, I mean, I think basically even right from the start, the first frame of the film, basically after Catherine Hunter's voice, when she um, um, introduces it, um, there are bells and they seem to be, I, not to put too much of a, you know, um, of a, you know, a point on it, but they do kind of, you know, something about this big church bell suggests fate, you know, um, uh, and especially in a, in a story like this. So yeah, they're right there from the beginning and, um, and almost right up in, until the end or certainly until Macbeth's end. And it does sort of feel like, you know, fate is, is calling for him. In one way or another. And then, you know, some of those bells are mine, some of them are skips. I couldn't even tell you at this point (laughs) which are which, but we did make sure that we were always in in tune with each other when we were doing these things. But yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's also a fair number of just, I don't know if you'd call them altered sounds, like even the strings that I was talking about, the cellos and the basses, I distort them at some time, put them through distortion effects like you would do for, you know, an electric guitar. You know, it's a distorted world, Macbeth's world, and so I just didn't mm. want it to be. You know, I'm not looking for a beautiful string sound. These are great players, and they they, they do sound beautiful, but it's not that kind of story, right? It's a right. it's a dark, disturbing story. So um a lot of the times, the the sounds are um, are altered um, digitally, electronically to um, make them odder, and that happens with the percussion too. Yeah, it's. Um, it's one of the things that's these days it's so easy within the computer to to do that and um and with this story it seemed like just an appropriate time to do it
0: you've got two specific tracks that do feel a little more traditionally movie scory. you mentioned one of them the burn and wood track but then the one you close the film with the uh the end of macbeth is just a banger um when you have kind of a lot of these melodies coming together so tell me a little bit about those two tracks because I really sure. love listening to
2: them. Well, they're you know, of course, to me uh, as a the composer, they're two they're two great scenes because there's almost no dialogue. There's is um, mm-hmm. really yeah. I think Burnham Wood has a little bit of dialogue. So a couple of times when the English forces on horseback or you know have something to say, but um, basically it's music uh, and visuals. And the and the end scene has no dialogue. And yeah. Isn't even really in the play. It's a thing that Joel invented, uh, so that means that the music can really just come, you know, fully into its own. And it has a lot, especially in that end scene, because it's there's no dialogue and it is not in the play. The music has um, a lot to do too, to like sort of try to make us feel like this is a conclusion, but also not a conclusion. Like what, mm-hmm. what, you know, what does this scene have to say about the future of Scotland and but also just you know humanity. Um, and it's not a bright future, it's not, (laughs) yeah, I know, I know. There's there's some you know, there's nice surprises. We see fleances live, you know, so there's a moment of almost a major you know tonality there, but it's um, but yeah, mostly it's to keep us guessing like, what where is this going and what do we and what does it mean? This the ending that's been given to us, it's not, it's uh, kind of unsettling and which, of course is the way it should be okay so something
0: that's particularly unsettling uh there was a moment in the film that you and Joel did something really interesting um with the text I was curious there's a way you played Ross coming up the stairs towards Lady Macbeth just before her suicide your music suggests to me that uh Joel was giving us a very different spin on what happened there. Uh, how did you kind of score the whole buildup to the battle and what were you trying to tell us?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, that's a good example of, you know, how I'm not, you know, I'm ideally not trying to tell you mm-hmm. what's exactly going on, but leave open, you know, possibilities that, um, that maybe you wouldn't have thought about otherwise. And that's right. And Joel has, Ross's character is probably the biggest change Joel's made in the screenplay, um, turning it from the adapting it from the play into a screenplay. He's uh, Ross is a much more important um, figure uh, now, and is present kind of all the time. He just sort of shows up, you know, in all of these places. He's like the survivor, right? He's a yeah. I, to me, I I think of him as the deep state. He's the one who uh, <laughs> will always be there, you know, no matter who who is king. But that's right, and the way he it's kind of him and. Lady Macbeth, uh, even though there's crowds of people rushing around, it's um, it's shot and then also scored as so it's just the two of them so that even though there's a battle going on and people rushing everywhere, the music comes down to just like harp and some you know, and violins or we don't even you often have violins in this score but and it's yeah, it's just meant to be an open-ended suggestion of uh, that um, you know, <laughs> yeah well, you see, you know, right this is, but you could see the whole movie and at the end still not know is ross really responsible for these things that have happened we know yeah. that he had fleance but otherwise all we do is we usually see him like collecting information passing on information concealing information um, we don't actually see him act until the very you know take action yeah. until that very 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 end that last scene you were talking about and but the one with the lady macbeth is another one so, yeah we don't we see something that could be him taking action, but we don't really know. and and Joel, yeah, he's he's the adaptation is wonderful because it does present you with a lot of questions that you might have had when reading the play or seeing the play. But uh, Joel's really, you know brought them right to the fore, I think.
0: Yeah. so uh, you know obviously you've been working with Joel for years. You worked with Ethan for years, too. Was this a different process, kind of just having Joel this time around? Well,
2: it's not that different, honestly. Yeah. It's a little, yeah. it's a little different. I'll tell you, you know, it was more different because of the pandemic than it was mm. because of um, the absence of Ethan. Um, obviously, I loved talk, talking to Ethan and and seeing him and um, working on things. I love you know working with them both. It's just the best. Um, but in this case, I couldn't even. I was never in the same room with Joel the whole. Oh God. Film uh i never saw it wasn't until the playback of the mix that we finally were actually all he didn't come to the recording because he was in california i was on the east coast we traveling wasn't easy you were both in our 60s so we don't really you know we just didn't want to get in a situation where we could get covid when back then there weren't treatments or anything you know so anyway the pandemic frankly made more of a difference probably than than anything else, we we did made the whole film on Zoom and on, on the phone and <laughs> stuff like that. But yeah, uh, you know, I, I mean, I miss Ethan. He's Ethan is a musician, you know. so we, we often, mm-hmm. when you get down to the nitty gritty of, um, if we are talking about music and talking about instrumentation and things like this, Ethan loves those conversations, because he, he just he really, I mean, they both love music, but Ethan actually does play, and um, so um, yeah. I missed him, but I don't think that it was, the whole thing was just so different because of so many different reasons. Um, Shakespeare, there's a pandemic going on, even not there. In many ways, it, just, it's, it was just a different type of project.
0: Yeah, and uh, during the pandemic was recording, I guess, you're, I assume you are not playing a lot of these instruments yourself. You have a team, I'm a, was that difficult during COVID having to organize and get everyone together to play their parts? <laughs>
2: Uh, yes, it was. Uh, you know, I mean, every yeah. Obviously, COVID. Uh, you know, the worst things about COVID it killed many, many people. But, um, but yes, it was hard. Just like shooting uh, the the film, you know, doing the recording was hard. We we did it in March of 2020. And I wasn't completely certain until we really got to the recording studio exactly how it was going to work. We dealt with Apple help put together the COVID protocols and we had testing people there every day. Everyone get tested in the morning, like the strings and me and the engineers, we all get tested and then we go to work and I could wear a mask. Actually, one of the reasons why I actually tried to write the whole thing for strings was because they could all wear masks, strings mm-hmm. and all wear masks. And right, right. Um, I figured that would help. In the end, I did need some brass and um, and that was even more challenging, but, um, you know, because they brass is all about breath and spit, you know, it's all right. exactly what you don't want to have um, when there's a respiratory disease. going <laughs> on. Um, But we, you know, we figured out ways to make that work with had big, really big room where they could be like 16 feet apart with partitions between them and and um, yeah, and, I mean, I, was, I felt very proud at the end that we had pulled it off and all the musicians were very happy because a lot of them hadn't worked you know, in like a year. Yeah. Um, and um, so it was, you know, it, but it was definitely, I'll always remember it being challenging. I'm hoping that, you know, I don't have, you know, five more years of working with masks on, but. Um,
0: <laughs> we all you know. hope so.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, the Last question, what are you scoring next?
2: Well, I already did um, since then. As if it wasn't bad enough doing uh, brass, my, the next score I did with uh, Lena Dunham was all vocals. Um, I oh, just, wow. She has a, f- a film, the title is Catherine Called Birdie um, for Amazon, and we recorded that maybe two months ago now with this vocal group, Roomful of Teeth. And I, I just really wanted a vocal score. I had to, I, It was one of those rare, case, rare cases where I read the script and knew exactly what I wanted to do, have a vocal um, a vocal score and I knew exactly that this was the group to do it and that also like six months before we would not have been able to do it there wasn't any yeah. way to put eight vocalists in a room together right because they can't wear masks and they get sure. all breath but um, by this time they were all vaccinated and we kind of had um, we're able to put together again testing every day and uh, anyway so that I just finished that a couple months ago and right now um, I'm waiting for Martin McDonough to send me a cut of his next film, which he's editing right now. So
0: that's oh yeah, my, yeah, the yeah.
2: Banshees of Inisharan. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Can't wait for that. Well, uh, Carter, it's uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to hear whenever you drop a new score album. This one is as good as ever, and uh, I wish you best of luck this Oscar season. Hopefully, this is your first long overdue Cohen movie nomination. We shall see.
2: We will see. Yep. All well, right. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Good talking to you. Didst thou not hear noise?
3: He thought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more.
2: Are you a man? No.
3: A bold one. That dare look upon that which might
1: have all the devil I have no words. My voice is in my sword. Uh Stefan.
0: You know, I I was looking through your credits, and obviously you previously, you have a lot of credits as the art director, but I think this is your first time with the Coens fully as the production designer. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about how your position with the Coens changed and what you were doing before versus what you're doing now.
3: Yeah, I've been, um, I'm trying to think, I've been art directing Kind of unofficially, I was an assistant art director on Lost World. So I've been art directing probably since mid 1990s. Mm-hmm. And then um, around 2010, 2011, started uh, getting into production design and getting a couple projects up and going that never went anywhere, <laughs> um, which is just kind of how it is when you're starting. I was fortunate enough, my wife and Jess Gantcher were working on uh, True Gret. Jess was the Mm -hmm. production designer. My wife was his art director. And I had um, flown into Austin to just hang out with my wife, basically. I just wrapped (laughs) um, Sucker Punch. And while I was there, uh, they needed an art director to go to uh, and handle all the New Mexico sets. So I met with Jess. He asked me if, and I think it was, that was a Wednesday, if on Friday I wanted to get on a plane with the brothers and Roger Deakins and himself and start work and I was totally into it. So I went to an REI and bought some warm weather clothes and I <laughs> bought some supplies from the, from the university shop and, and, I, and I left and, I, and, and then I, I worked with Jess on the New Mexico portion, which was a lot of the outdoors and, and um, some cabins and, and uh, the top of the, the cave where the girl falls in. And it, it was lovely. It basically just, just let me know what he wanted done and then it was, it was myself and a coordinator and that, that was it. And it was very hands-on, it was a beautiful landscape. And then I loved working with Joel and Ethan. It was, it was really fantastic. Um, I like being around directors. I always have, even when yeah. I was an illustrator, I enjoyed storyboarding a lot. I like being in there. I like the idea of creating the imagery. Uh, I liked it as an art director. When I worked with Rick Carter, he has a way of working where he lets his art directors kind of own their sets. So I had a lot of time spent with Zemeckis during those years. So I really enjoyed that time with Joel and Ethan. And then um, that that was it, I I moved on to other things. There there was a time where there was a project that they were thinking of doing and Jess wasn't available. And I I went out to New York and met, met with them. And then things changed and, and they went and did Lewin Davis and, and just designed that, which was beautiful, beautiful. It looked film. so
0: good. Oh my god. Yeah,
3: and it's a it's a fantastic criterion Blu-ray as well. <laughs> um, and then so that was about it. And I've I've moved on with my career. I started with Legendary with their Monsterverse and and um and doing a couple films with them, and then I did some films with Bob and um at the time when Joel called, I was prepping a version of Snow White, which is being made now in in London with, it, with the, a different production. Set. This was with um, this is with uh, Mark Webb, and Mark oh, Platt okay. was producing. But Disney wasn't ready to make it at the time, and it just happened to be that when I got the call asking to meet with Joel, was right when I right after I got the call that we were shutting down Snow White. Mm. Um, so to me, it was a little bit of out of the blue and, and a happy surprise because, uh, you know, you just think that you don't know when your paths are going to cross again. So I, yeah. I, was, I was really um, excited to get the call. So uh,
0: one thing I thought was interesting about a couple of the projects you've done since you've mm-hmm. been production designing, mm-hmm. they're much more CGI heavy. And unless my eyes deceive me, uh, this seemed like a very just practically designed set. Yeah, was that a different experience for you doing something that just
3: not particularly because I've done so much as a as an art director and as a as a um and as an illustrator. I mean, listen, I got in my first film that I got into was on Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. I got into that because they wanted to do what we call previs now, right. but as I was told at the time, they had a machine, a computer, that could was capable of building three D models. And was I interested in doing that? So I, I dropped out of school to work on Jurassic Park. Oh, um, man. Yeah, and then I was gonna go back to school when I got an offer to work on on uh, uh, Forrest Gump. And then I decided things were going pretty well, so let's just stay <laughs> here. But, but those, were have, those, those, were very, those were the early days of having digital in the art department. So mm-hmm. I was e- either working in Photoshop or I was building 3D models. But I'd also had this experience because during that time when I was in school, I had also um, interned at at Industrial Light and Magic and had a lot of friends at ILM. And, you know, it was a a different company than it is today. It was much smaller and it was only, you know, it was only about 18 years after uh, something like that, after the last Star Wars came out or something like that. So I I always had that background and then working with Rick Carter and uh, on his projects, you know, they were heavily visual effects. But right. you never but you always wanted to have those visual effects incorporated in the storytelling. So mm-hmm. it was never none of those films ever felt like they, they were just kind of showmanship of visual effects. Jurassic Park, even though it was groundbreaking, it was all about the, you know, what makes that first film so good is Steven's direction on it, Oof. you know, and how it kind of holds everything back and then boom, lets it go in that second half. And then that had a, a, an influence on me and I and I used it as my calling card. It's, like I'm somebody who can work in both realms. I can mm-hmm. I can work in visual effects and I can work in and I understand that culture and how that culture has got to work with the culture of being in production. And so I use that as my calling card. So Kong fit very well for that. Yeah. You know, and in terms of like they wanted a different types of a King Kong movie. They wanted something with this verisimilitude and that you were in a real environment. That that felt good to me. And and the visual effects supervisor was. Stephen Rosenbaum, who I had known from ILM and worked together on Contact in many films, so that felt like my world. But it was always director-driven, yeah. you know. So even you know, Pac Rim, it was you know they were dual, they wanted a Stephen Denight and Legendary wanted a very different feel from what Del Toro was doing, and you know that that was an avenue for me to be in there. So yeah, those films are all visual effects driven. Macbeth. I think just plays to, you know, sometimes you, an opportunity will come your way and it opens up and it and it plays to another part of you. And in this case, I love cinema history yeah. and I love artifice in cinema and I've never been able to do that. You know, I like older musicals. I like, you know, black I like the universal horror films, you know, yeah. they, they seem like they have nothing in common but they, they do have this artifice that's in there where it's a, you know, there's this, Sheen, where where it can either be created in black and white or it can be created in in technicolor that already takes the audience out of it. And and you can play with the imagery where you're not really doing it in a naturalistic sense. So yeah, the other films stand as their own thing. I am very fortunate that Joel felt like in his limited time with me that I could be the person to collaborate with him and Bruno. So, well, it looked I have awesome. No to that that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he made a good call.
0: So, I was curious. Did you? Uh, you have a book on matte painting behind you, right now. Mm-hmm. The sets that we're looking at. Uh, did you guys end up incorporating all kinds of visual trickery to make them some of them bigger than they some are?
3: Of, uh, so, some of them are. When you say visual trickery, some of that is just done by design, mm-hmm. right? So that it can sit on a stage and have that. Some of that is done. Uh, in lighting, mm-hmm. and that's working with Bruno and, right. and and Joel, and I think it's really important that people realize that this movie is Joel's vision. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I I come into it as a collaborator, but I didn't come into it going, "Let's make it black and white." Let's let's look at drier or look at Murdock. That was already in Joel's the how he wanted to make this film. Yeah. So going to visual trickery there's several ways you can do that one is you know just by the design of it and how it's lit and how mm-hmm. what that what that's going to look like and those sets and i've said this in a couple interviews they're built out of light and shadow mm-hmm. and and i don't mean that as a metaphor i mean they literally built out a light and shadow and how they work depends on that light and shadow so that was a real collaboration between bruno and myself and then there's other parts to it that yes do have matte paintings or set extensions but they're you know, the, like the Inverness courtyard has the towers in the distance, and those towers in the distance, and how they're presented. We even wanted to make them feel like they were flats, mm. you know, and if they didn't feel like flats, we wanted them to feel like matte paintings. Yeah. And so I did look at uh, Albert Whitlock and look at his style. I I also looked, there's a great archive online where you can look at old matte paintings and pull that oh, off. That's cool. I went to, uh, I also went through. There's a, a place called JC Backings that has all, they're, they're like the only guys in town now that that have painted backing archives and looked at their archives to see how uh, stylistically those backings would be created. And so whenever we did a matte painting, we always wanted, even though it was digital, you know, it wasn't like we were going to, hire somebody to paint on glass <laughs>
0: physically but, paint but, it, yeah
3: yeah but we wanted it to feel like it was painted on glass yeah. we wanted it to feel like you had the hand of the artist in there so some of that helps extend it but i can't think too much i think you know you can see there's a glen that the the crossroads are in and that has matte paintings that kind of help extend out beyond the yeah. fog you know but um most of it was all built and in, in camera
0: that's very cool details. Jumba.
2: Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that.
0: Okay. So one thing I was curious about is I think I read somewhere that Joel didn't want any
3: furniture in the interiors. Is that, is that accurate? Well, I think it, so that comes down to set decorating and my set decorator is phenomenal. She's Nancy Haig, mm-hmm. who has seven nominations and she won twice. She won while we were on, um, Alice in Wonderland, right? No, no, she, she won for, uh, Bugsy and then she won while we were working on Macbeth for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood oh, and so okay. yeah so so I bring this power and she's also known Joel and Ethan for ages right so we came onto this project and Joel said listen it, it might be that we dress a set and we pull it back and I'm just going to play with what I want or we just have the elements standing on the side and if I feel like I need it I need it but part of the the idea was to kind of create this geometry, right? so so that there's a um, an abstraction to the whole space. Mm-hmm. And then there's an emptiness that's being carried on to the film that you want to have symbolically, even within Inverness. You know, they, they don't have children. The, that time is past. Mm-hmm. As Joel says they're post-menopausal, she's postmenopausal. So this is their last stab at. at at glory and um and so that emptiness kind of encapsulates that then there's the abstraction and the expressionism of that where it's not literally german expressionism where you're painting on the floor like dr kiligari that has kind of an artifice that that we didn't want Mm -hmm. but there's an expressionism that's carrying what's happening in the scenes and therefore you don't need the dressing or the set, the, the, the furniture or the, the, the other elements in there distracting from it. You know, one thing that uh, Bruno said, it's like a haiku. So we wanted to see what are the least amount of notes that we could put in there to kind mm-hmm. of say a scene. So if you look where the second apparition appears, the only objects in that room are the water, the glass and the potion. That's it, because they're the only objects that need to move the scene forward. You yeah. don't even need a table in there. So we never wanted that. So there's a small little altar that kind of sits with these objects on that just propel the scene forward. So again, part of that was just letting the text and the actors and that be in the forefront. And then to encapsulate this emptiness of this of this dread of and, and coldness of this space, psychological space around them. Uh, okay, so I was curious.
0: You always, Joel and Bruno always knew it was gonna be black and white. What did you do in terms of colors to make this work knowing it was gonna be shot?
1: I
3: didn't do anything because there was no need to, because it wasn't, it wasn't like we were doing a version. We weren't doing a film like um, The Man Who Wasn't There. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were doing something like that and it was a period film where, the, let's call it a more naturalistic period film, right? I'd want a space that the actors and the director could feel was right we were already abstracted plus we were 10 weeks out when I started this film so we we needed to move quickly so there wasn't any need to you built um, this all in 10 weeks We designed and built. we it. designed and built it in 10 weeks wow so I didn't need to be distracted by color <laughs> and we were constantly like looking through iPhones to go is this working or not working and um, so I just painted in gray now the greens came in and they would be kind of shocking because mm-hmm. they they would be there in greens and you know i've told a story also about we did this moss glue technique in on the crossroads just to help get this extra texture in there which is kind of this gun that shoots moss and glue at the same time and a friend of mine richard bell who who invented the thing when he came on to do it he said you know he apologized to only having green bright green moss but in black and white, it looked just fine. So yeah. the green moss actually was kind of nice because it kind of it separated it. But I got to tell you, once Bruno lit it, it even though there was a bits of color in there, it felt like you were in a black and white world. And that was the same with um, Burnham Woods. When you were on Burnham Woods, once it was lit, it, you felt like you were in a black and white world. So I, again, I never wanted to be distracting about that. So uh, I was curious since
0: obviously... Joel had his idea up front, but uh, you know, a lot of what happens in the story isn't in the text. How did you decide where the final fight between Macbeth and Macduff was gonna be on that bridge? And also tell me about designing that to look narrow, but also be able to have a well choreographed sword fight.
3: Oh yeah, well, that was always scripted that it would be on the ramparts. And Joel had an idea in his head. He had shown me a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge in fog. You to see two towers sticking up. So that was kind of our our kind of go-to piece of image. And then I, I did a couple paintings, just, when I say paintings, just real quick Photoshop sketches of, of what that could possibly look like. And anytime, again, it it got too complicated, it wasn't something we wanted to go for. So we we fairly I'd say about uh, about four weeks before we started shooting, because that could have been that was built later. You know, not everything's gotta be. You, sure. you, you have time to bleed in sets and so we we kind of knew what that was the next thing was to what we did is we uh, we just had these foam core blocks that the art department made that were like eight foot by two foot by two foot and we had a ton of them and then we would just move those around and whenever we'd show joel a set we would go this wide is this where the trees <laughs> are is this so you could lay that out and once you got that to a good spot you could measure it off and 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 tape it out. So if you had a set designed and we were doing all our designs digitally so that he could go and look with a, with a virtual camera but the, to really walk through the space, we'd go tape it out on, and everybody does this. You go tape it out on stage and then we could put these blocks up. So in rehearsal, Joel um, and the stunt coordinator, they could just take that and then just kind of move it, shrink it to what they felt was right. And Joel wanted that compression yeah. And he wanted the, the swords that kind of couldn't move around. And so once they, they worked it out, you know, they just called us over and said, measure that, build that. <laughs> and, and that's how we did it. Yeah, so a lot of that, he, I mean, he's, I can't say enough of how, what an incredible um, artist he is to work with because he's got this in his mind and it's deeper than what's being presented as, as the imagery. You know I think an example that's like Burnham Woods coming to Dunsinane to like the idea of opening those doors and then the the, the, the leaves coming in so in cool. that whirlwind but then the columns become the trees so that was always I mean that was day one we had that conversation so again because sometimes I'll see myself getting recognition but it's just like the director, the director brings that vision to it. And I just want to reiterate that over and over. And, he, and um, yeah, so, you know, playing out how that choreography works is is all within his purview and, and in the creative process of making those sense.
0: All right, so do you have a favorite environment in this film
3: that you, Joel, and Bruno created? Yeah, I love the, I mean, I don't know if it's the favorite, but I, I love... Um, we always called it the apparition chamber, and it, yeah. it's so, so where Macbeth, he's seen Banquo, the ghost of Banquo, walk mm-hmm. past the the um, the banquet, and then he goes into that hallway that's all askew because of his madness. So, he moves into there, and then he moves into that that little room. I love that little room. First of all, I just there was something that was really nice about the proportions of it, and in the post-COVID world, I could go sit in there. <laughs> and and uh, and it felt okay. I like being in that spot, but I, I also think it's just a beautiful. It just worked out well. I had a, a set designer named David Moreau, and I did a very quick sketch. We were trying to figure that out, and actually, I did it in a sharpie so that it wouldn't be locked down. And he helped me uh, design that space. And I and I and I love how it frames the, the witches. I like that it becomes a. Cauldron. Oh, that's such a
0: cool shot. That's one of my favorites when they're oh. peering down
3: yeah and uh, by the way the, don't if you're checking I got as enough time as you need. Uh, I have a meeting in in a half hour, so as long as you want to go, I can talk um so the um going back yeah the the witches looking down it it was just i was really i like that thing and i and, it, and also I like to work with people. It's not like I create all this stuff myself, you know, I bring in a group of people and then it's almost. I would imagine I don't play, but it was almost like bringing in a jazz quartet. It's just like, you do this, you do that, and you and you wanna get into a call and response with the people that you surround yourself with. And that was a case of, of I had this a couple uh, inspiration images that Joel had already pulled and that weren't like the space, but to then be able to take that marker kind of changed it. And then to have somebody that I could sit with and go, I want you to build that. And and tell me what that comes up with. That we were able to create that space is all a testament to the the people that you bring in and that that you create with. And sometimes they don't get mentioned, but you know it's that that's really how it happens. Is is a call and response by the the people you bring in.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I I did pretty much give you all the big questions I wanted to have, but it's you uh you have so much to say about this film and it, it's really cool. It sounds like that Joel is someone who really fosters creativity like this, uh, before, before I go, do you have any other just lingering thoughts, anything you're particularly proud of on this one?
3: Well, I think for me, I think what's really interesting is that Joel is in communication with the original text in this film. Yeah. I think I, from what I've read about Polanski and his version, it, you know, that about being post-Tate, and the Tate murders and how he's interacting with the text. There's Kurosawa, and, and how he's translating that text the way that joel's entering it what i find fascinating is it's it's in dialogue with the text it's never denying that it's a um, a play
2: mm-hmm. you
3: know it's it's creating an artifice that connects itself to the theatrical experience but it's still cinematic yeah and then within that there's a symbolism that sometimes is direct so it, whether that's the stars and the on the king's cloaks and then the night he dies. You know, there's husbandry in heaven, meaning the stars have gone out. The stars are gonna go out for for Duncan. But there's also this, this really sophisticated thing he's doing with design and rhythm. And so there's a rhythm to the text and there's repetitive imagery in the text, whether it be sometimes it's mother's milk, sometimes it's uh, birds, night, it mentions time. Joel is doing that. He's creating that with the design. And so you you whether it's series of colonnades running off or it's just even the floor patterns that are out in the courtyard, or it's a shape that's repeating itself uh, on the doorways that then is picked up in Mary's costume design. that's all lending itself to the to the the rhythm and the and the and the, uh, the quality, the 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 writing of the text. And I, I think that that's pretty amazing. And then- That's a, insane. I, I, yeah, and I, and I think that it's it's, it's really beautiful. And, it, and I think that's why he is who he is. I mean, a, a director of that caliber and an artist of that caliber. And so when you bring in Fran as a producing partner and you bring in Bruno, this incredible DP who not only can photograph, but he can draw and he can Photoshop. And so he, you can be in dialogue with him. I, I, I think he did something really cool. I mean, I'm biased, but <laughs> I, I love the film. And I, and I, and, um, and I, I really care a lot for those people. And and uh, it was just a great experience. I, I think that's all I can add to it.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I, I remember talking about the shapes being incorporated. I remember reading that he and Ethan would often even try to cast people for background characters who had like... Almost triangular faces and stuff, <laughs> you know, to to even go as far as incorporate that into the shapes because the, the triangle is a dangerous shape or something. And, uh, yeah. and I
3: don't, I don't know. I've never talked to him about that. But, uh, <laughs> Maybe
0: um, it's a myth. You can find out one of these days. Yeah,
3: I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, yeah.
0: Um, well, look, it's uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. You uh, you sound like quite the student of cinema, and uh, oh, I love no, looking at all not. the books back here. Yeah.
3: So. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and uh, I appreciate your excitement and uh, you being at the beginning of your career and uh, wish you all the luck that you, you deserve and uh, take care of yourself and be healthy.
0: I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much and uh, good luck. Good luck this Oscar season. And hopefully here's to many more collaborations with Joel.
3: That would be great. Okay. You take care. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interviews with the composer for The Tragedy of Macbeth, Carter Burwell, and the production designer, Stéphane Duchant, here on The Next Best Picture podcast. The Tragedy of Macbeth is currently streaming on Apple TV+, Plus and playing in limited release in theaters. You have been listening to The Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time.